As I mentioned, today is going to be the last of our series in Exodus. I'm so grateful for Michael, who filled in the last two Sundays. I had a chance to hear his um, great exposition of some very difficult chapters in Exodus. He's laughing because I gave them to him and I said, are you sure you want to do these? And he said, okay, I'll, I'll take it on. Um, but Exodus has, as we entered into Exodus, I told you that there's sections that have a lot of just instruction about how the people of God are going to create a place and a space for a holy God to dwell among them so that they can enter into worship. So when we go back, this is kind of just a quick and dirty recap. We know that our, our theme has been God draws us out to draw us in. We saw that in the very beginning with Moses being drawn out of the water as a baby, and then God drawing him in to this mission after he had fled Egypt to be a leader for the people and to be God's instrument in leading them out of slavery. And then we saw how after God draws them out, he, he shows them miraculous ways he's going to care for them. First in you know, drowning the Egyptian army and giving them a crossing of the Red Sea. And then also in providing water in the middle of the desert and food in the middle of the desert. And then finally leading them to the Mount Sinai, back where Moses started with the burning bush. And giving them the law. But of course, during that episode, we see how difficult this is going to be. Because when the people think Moses is gone, he's been gone too long, up on the mountain, he's dead. They, they immediately get Aaron to build him this golden calf. And they begin to turn away from God. And so there's also, we see punishment and death coming right back into the story, just as we saw in Genesis. And then this law is given, and then a way of being able to enter into a process of sacrifice to pay for forgiveness and um, to pay, excuse me, pay for sin and receive forgiveness and to be a people who can be around a holy God. So this has all been leading up to really the climax that we're going to see in Exodus 40, which is God, if I could, I want to use this phrase because I think it helps me make this connection. God moving into their neighborhood. There's a tabernacle and God is going to come in there. And the reason I use that phrase is because Eugene Peterson in the message, he uses that when he translates John 1.1. And he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, the word took on, I think he, I don't know how he says the word became flesh. But he says, and moved into the neighborhood. And so I like that idea that we're, we are seeing this connection and God desiring to be close to his people, but the people continuing in these patterns of sin. And how does this all work? And of course, um, you know, Michael again did a great job of talking to, you know, making those connections with the New Testament and how Paul talks about this process happening through Jesus. So I want to read Exodus 40. We're going to read verses 16 to 38. Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was set up. Moses set up the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the covenant and put it into the ark. And put the poles in the ark, and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the curtain for screening, and screened the ark of the covenant as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain, 
and set the bread in order, in order on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the curtain, and offered fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also put in place a screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set up the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and put up the screen at the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. That's a lot of stuff. That's a summary of a lot of the chapters ahead, where Moses is, God is giving Moses detailed instructions and the craftsmanship and how all of these things need to be laid out. It's important to note that this pattern inside the tabernacle, which gets transferred to the temple, is still in place when Jesus walks into Jerusalem the first time. So all of this becomes very important because at this point, they're, they're setting it up and getting it ready. And then this is what happens, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because a cloud settled upon him, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, as always, we're looking for your wisdom, your spirit's wisdom and insight as we come to your word, as we meditate upon it, as we listen for your voice. We ask that you would show us the things we need to see in here. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God's presence comes among the people in the desert. It's a beautiful image of their, the rhythm of their life, isn't it? Where they are wandering for 40 years, but the pattern is when God is there, they stay. When God moves, they move. And so you can imagine every day getting up and looking, oh, the cloud is still there. We're staying here. Oh, Cloud's moving, better pack up, right? This becomes a pattern as they respond to God day in and day out in their life in the desert, in the wilderness. But beyond that, I think the pieces that maybe are a little bit harder for us to connect with, and I, you might go, well, this seems kind of odd. Why is God in a cloud? Why is God in a pillar of fire? And this is a piece that is a little bit harder for us who are used to the lives we have and the dwellings we have and all that we have, because they're out in the middle of the desert. So just translate no trees and lots of sun. Okay, we're talking about Middle East heat. You can imagine the dust and the, 
the um, heat that they deal with um, day in and day out. And what a beautiful thing. They happen to have a cloud among them and with them. And it doesn't give us really any details about how big this cloud might be or anything like this. But I just think of how wonderful that must have been. We, on our vacation, one of the places we went to is a, a place called Fort Rock. It's a state park in Oregon. Uh, most people never go there. It's way out of the way. I just happened to live for four years in a Forest Service guard station that was really close by that state park, so I wanted to take my kids there. But you are in the middle of the desert. This is a desert that stretches from um, basically this south-central part of Oregon all the way down through um, Reno, Las Vegas, and eventually connects into um, uh, Arizona and then spreads down to Mexico. I mean, we're talking, you can go a long ways from there without trees if you wanted to stay in the desert. So, and this is a beautiful spot. I love it because the tree line ends. It's ponderosa pine trees like they have over on the east side of Washington, like the Spokane area, Coeur d'Alene. Um, Bend has a lot of these big ponderosa pine trees. And so, there's actually a line of these trees where they just end. You can see them on the horizon, and the desert begins, and it's just open. It's just sagebrush and bitter brush and rabbit brush and rock. And then the middle of it is this gigantic rock, and it's shaped in a big um, semicircle with just one opening on it. The outside cliffs are, you know, a little over 100 feet tall and almost vertical, and the inside is broken down, and you can walk up. And the oldest Native American artifacts found in all of the Americas were found here. Sagebrush sandals. They found them in a cave right nearby because this place used to be a lake. Long, long time ago. There's nothing, no water there now. It's very dry. So I was thinking about the, that experience as I was reading this text because we were there and it was warm, but it wasn't super hot. But I've been there when it's been really, really hot. And, you know, we didn't just walk up and walk around. By the time Cameron was dying for water, because I told him he could leave his water bottle in the truck, and, which was not a good thing for Dad to say. Um, but, you know, when you're in that kind of heat and you have nowhere, I mean, even the cleft of a rock becomes a nice place to be because you're looking for shade. But what if you had a cloud? Oh, the relief from the sun. And then what if it gets dark? Again, in the same place, I lived there for four years. I was trying to explain it to my kids when I was there. I said, when you're out here in the desert like this, and it's high desert, so when the sun goes down, it flips. And it gets very cold most of the year. Very rarely does it stay warm. And I said, you can see the stars. And it's just going all the way down the horizon. You can point forward and see stars and go like this all the way around and see stars. I mean, it's just amazing Thing. You feel sort of the being on the surface of the earth. And then the cold just has, it just comes from everywhere. Except for the rocks. <laughs> the one place it kind of stays warm. The cold comes from everywhere. And then I think about what would that be like? Because when I lived out at this guard station that was near there, we didn't have electricity. We just had a generator, which is still the setup today. We stopped by and they had a generator running. So when we needed electricity, we'd flip on the generator. But every night... Whoever was up last, I'd go turn off the generator, and you would walk in just darkness, unless you had stars or moon. And of course, I had a flashlight, but a lot of times I would turn it off. I just loved being out in that kind of darkness. You're so far away from any city that it's just dark. And it's comforting because I'm walking over to my little cabin, but suppose you're tenting it. Suppose you're just living out there. That's a whole different experience. We did some, a lot of camping on um, Lake Chelan. 
And when you're in a place where there's wild animals and there's bears and there's all those kinds of things, there's very few things that are more comforting than a campfire. You know, you start the campfire and it gives you light and it gives you warmth and it just gives you a little bit of that sense of this is where we're at and so protection. Even like our dog knows that. You know, dogs will come and lay down by the campfire. They're like, okay, this is a safe place. This is a place to be. And God provides for the Israelites fire by night. They don't have any portable generators, but they have light. I mean, it's a, it's a miracle. It's an amazing thing. God provides this for them day and night. And as, as Michael pointed out, the, the, the tabernacle, it gives them a place where they can look and they can see and they can say, there is God among us. It gives them that visual. But they're going to be doing this for 40 years. And so I have to wonder, at some point, does it just become part of the scenery? I mean, to us, it sounds pretty miraculous, but any of you who've lived around Camino Island for any amount of time, or the water, or just in this area any amount of time, how often can you go through your day without even really thinking about the amazing view of the water or the mountains sticking out in the sky? I know often I get woken up to that when I'm driving my kids to school and I'm coming off the island and it's that time of year when the sun is just coming up as I'm going down and it sort of highlights the mountains and it just like kind of takes my breath away. But honestly, most days I see it so often I don't even think about it. I just drive, right? We live in such a beautiful place. But it does have that habit of after a while, whatever you're used to becomes kind of part of the scenery. And so I wonder, for the Israelites... Does that happen? As we move forward in their story, we know that it becomes quite easy for them to turn away from God again and again and again. We have no indication that God's presence has left, that that cloud, the fire is gone. And yet they find it easier and easier, it seems, to turn away from God. So I have to believe that there is a point, perhaps, when that starts to happen. You know, as I talk about that kind of beauty, I mean, I, when I first moved here to this side of the mountains, I grew up in Central Oregon, east side. I went to school in Spokane, east side. So I had never spent a spring in, on the west side. So I'd always lived in drier climates. And I was working at Mountain View Presbyterian Church in Marysville. And I remember that first spring, I was walking in, and there was an azalea bush growing right near the door. And it was one of those just hot pink bright pink azaleas, and that thing started to bloom, and I was in awe. I mean, I just could not believe the color, and I would walk into the office every day, and our poor secretary, Leah, who, she, she attends this church now, and Leah and Chris are often here, um, she got so tired of me walking in and going, isn't that bush beautiful? And she's thinking, yeah, I've got a dozen of them in my house, you know, but she's always nice, and like, oh yeah, it's very pretty. But I mean, I just, I was just Amazed, and then the rhododendrons bloomed. And then after that, this dogwood tree had all these beautiful plant flowers, and every single one was just like, wow, wow, you know, the purple plum trees coming out and blooming. I just never lived anywhere with that kind of color coming out in the spring. It just, I loved it. And of course, I've been here for over 20 years now, and I'm the one who walked by an azalea without even thinking of it most of the time. It's just another bush. Is sitting there. I mean, I do find, you know, I try to appreciate those things, but it's just not the same. What is the danger 
here for us spiritually. Because what happens if we go forward and we get to Jesus, the curtain in this temple is torn in two. God's presence is no longer staying inside this place on earth. But God comes and dwells within his people. So that you can say that the body of Jesus Christ is the church. We can say we are his body. It's that real. God's presence is no longer in a cloud or in the fire. But for all of those who say, I want Jesus to be uh, the one who forgives me. I want him to be my Lord and Savior. I want God to be my God. And God comes and dwells within us. And so we can even say that we are his temple. I'll say that in the, in the New Testament. So God's presence in us. And for, for those of us who grew up in the church, it's a little bit difficult because we've never known a separation from that presence. That's why it's so helpful for me when I hear stories of people who have come to know God as adults. Because for them, they can, they can remember what that was like. And, but even for those of us who grew up in the church, I still have times in my life when that presence was so real and so powerful that it just was, it just was overwhelming me. It just filled me. It just consumed me. And to experience God's presence like that is, is amazing. But then as we go forward in our spiritual journey, if we're honest, there's just days where we're not attentive to that at all. We've become so used to that that we're not even aware sometimes. And, and I don't think that's always a bad thing, but it can be a bad thing if we are never attentive to that presence of God with us. So how do we do that? I mean, just practically. And by the way, I want to say, um, if any of you, I can give these to you later, but I am going to give you some, some real practical things that I have found to be helpful in terms of attending to God's presence. So there are pencils and pens in the chairs. If anyone is wanting and you don't feel like you have to, but if you want to write some of these down, I'm just giving you a heads up because I'm going to give you some of those in just a moment. But it is, I think, a danger that we can sort of compartmentalize God to certain times and places. So we could come to worship on a Sunday morning and be very open to God's presence and singing and prayer and listening to God's word. And and really opening ourselves up and saying, Holy Spirit, I want you to to work on me right now and work on me today. But if we limit that experience and that attentiveness to this time, then we are missing out on all of this opportunity that God wants to work on us in the rest of our life. So there are times, of course, when we get these wake-up calls. When God comes and, and steps in in ways, or perhaps... There's times when we're just so hurting and things are so hard in our life that then we want to be attentive. And I think we should be, please. I mean, if there's ever a time to be attentive to God, it's in those moments. But I'm just saying that there's so much more that we could be attending to in terms of God's presence with us in good times and in bad times. So what does that look like? So just practically... I want to say that there are so many ways that we can be attentive to God, but they're primarily going to come through attending to God and um, listening to his word, whether that be, you know, audibly listening to 
a recording of scripture or someone talking about scripture or reading scripture on our own. When I talk about God's word, of course, Jesus is the word of God, but the scripture is the word of God, the written word in the sense that it speaks to us and reveals Jesus to us. So through the word of God and through prayer, I'm going to say those are going to be the primary ways that we're going to be attentive to God. So here's just some, a few practical ones that I've, I've found to be real helpful. There are a lot of apps now that are on our phones, and most of us carry our phones around all the time. We've got mine recording my sermon right now, right? We have them close to us all the time. And I think we're a little bit slow as Christians sometimes to understand how God um, can use technology in our lives. There are so many amazing apps out there that can get us into Scripture. Um, Some of them have been done in ways that you can access all different versions of the Bible. So one of them that I really enjoy is done by a church called Life Church. Um, They have put out a lot of resources for churches. It's called the YouVersion Bible app. And I believe now in the app store, I think it's even just called Bible. But the great thing about this is that it has built in Bible studies within it. So you can find a topic and it can give you daily readings to go along with these Bible studies. And I just want to say, what a great resource. Take advantage of things like that. If you just need to be led in that way, all you've got to do is pick up your phone and do it. So that's called the U version. Another one that's become really important for me that I use a lot because I drive a lot is called Pray As You Go. Pray As You Go is done by a Jesuit ministry, part of the Catholic Church. And it uses a different daily lectionary. I'm going to talk about daily lectionary in just a second. It uses a slightly different daily lectionary than we use. But that's okay. What it does is they follow a reading that will lead you through all of Scripture in three years. And so they will um, pick one of those. And it starts off with music. Sometimes it's chanting. Sometimes it's something else. They'll explain what the song means. A lot of time it might be Latin or something like that. And then it will be... So this is all audio, of course. And then someone will read the scripture, and then it leads you through some guided meditations on that scripture, and then it uh, reads the scripture again, and then it closes. And this is designed for, it's called Praise You Go, it's designed for people to be able to do while they're, you know, riding in their car, or riding on the subway, or riding on a bike, or with people around, you can plug in your earphones, and you can actually do this. It's a great resource, it's called Praise You Go, and I'm sure there's, again, on all these, I'm sure there's many others out there. The other one is a daily lectionary. The Daily Lectionary has been put together. There's one called the Revised Common Lectionary. A lot of Presbyterian churches and Reformed churches will use this as their guide for worship on Sundays because there's a Sunday reading, but there's also a daily reading. And what it does is it will take you through the entirety of the Bible in three years. And every day there will be a short reading out of two psalms. One of them is always one of the Laude Psalms, which is one of the last psalms in the Psalter. So there's going to be a repeat of one, you know, practically memorized. And then there's a different psalm. And then there's going to be an Old Testament reading and a gospel reading and a reading from one of the books of the Bible. And then it'll end with some evening psalms if you want to do those. So the daily lectionary, I get it on my email through the Presbyterian Mission Agency. There's, again, lots of resources. We share this. It's called the Revised Common Lectionary. So you can get it in a lot of different places. But I found this to be so helpful because I would like to know that I'm reading through the scope of scripture, but it also gives me something that's about five to ten minutes of reading every day that I can do that's going to be moving me through, and it picks up from the same place every day in each of those books. So, great resource, Daily Lectionary. Then there's tons of just amazing podcasts, and I'm not going to endorse any one podcast, 
But I just want to say, if you're looking for a way to be attending to your spiritual health, there's some great resources out there that you could plug into your ears, you could plug it into your car. A lot of us around here do a lot of driving, so that's a great resource. Another one that is built into every single one of our lives is meals. Is meals. This is what I'm finally coming around to. I love food. <laughs> My whole life, I've loved food. And I didn't know it could be a spiritual thing beyond saying the prayer before I, before I ate. It was one, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I heard a pastor talking about this. And he said, you know, God could have designed us a lot of different ways. We could have been like that snake you see at the zoo that has a little note that says, I ate 24 days ago, <laughs> or whatever it was. He could have designed us so we didn't need to eat so much. But for most of us, we need to eat at least three times a day. Maybe more. Right? Why? Well, I think one of the reasons just might be that you, I mean, when you go, if you look at all the scriptures and you see how important meals become in the story of God up to this meal of communion that we celebrate here, we realize there can be something spiritual about this. That there's a built-in recognition of our frailty and our need for something beyond us every single day. Meals can be spiritual just in the sense of taking a moment to recognize our need for God, but also it's a built-in sort of pause button in our day. I mean, you can go for fast food, and I know I'm, I can eat while I'm driving, kind of. But for the most part, even in a busy day, I will still, you know, my fingers have to come off my keyboard long enough for me to eat. It's a built-in opportunity for us to attend to spiritual things every day. And, and this is a really big end, it's a built-in opportunity for us to connect with other people every single day. When someone asked Jesus what the two greatest commandments were, he said, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Built into our life is an opportunity for us to connect with someone else who also has to eat every single day. It's a beautiful thing. Journaling. For those of you who have never experienced this, it can be whatever you want it to be. And I know that writing is a little bit antiquated. You could type it into your phone or whatever. But for me, the process of slowing myself down to write as I write slowly is good also. It can be a very spiritual experience for you to journal and to be able to reflect just on what's going on in your life, how God's moving in your life, and then be able to go back and look at that and talk through that with God. And then finally, of course, I mentioned prayer, and there's so many different kinds of prayer, I can't even go into it. But I just want to say that when Paul said that we should be praying at all times, it's an indication that when we think of prayer, we're probably limiting it in a way that isn't um, what God intended it to be. In other words, yes, I'm going to pray before my meal. Maybe I'll pray before I go to bed. Maybe I'll pray the Lord's Prayer, which I think is a valuable tool. I pray it every day. I pray before I go to bed every day. Um, but prayer, if it's conversation with this God, whose presence is with us, then we can begin to pray in ways that engage our, our attentiveness to God's Spirit throughout our day. For that person cutting us off in traffic, or for forgiveness as we cut someone off in traffic, or... You know, um, just, you know, whatever it is, just bringing those cares and concerns to God throughout our day. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of tools. One of the best tools we have for prayer is the Psalms. The Psalter, the Psalms, the middle book of the Bible is a book of songs and prayers. And if you're wanting to learn how to pray, 
pray through the Psalms. You could do one of those every day. If you're reading daily lectionary, you could use it that way. The other one I've used a lot is a Jesus prayer. You could look this up. It's not complicated. It's outcome Eastern Christianity. They use this a lot. And it's just a very simple prayer that says, um, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You can breathe that prayer. You know, you can breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ. You can breathe out, Son of God, have mercy on me, as you breathe in, a sinner. And there's a, there's a meditative you know, rhythm to that prayer. And it's not a magic formula by any means. It's just another one of those keys that, for me, it's been built into my life because I read how influential this has been to so many church mothers and fathers in Eastern Christianity. I thought, why have I never used this tool? And so I just build it into my life, and there's just times in my day when that becomes my prayer. It just helps me focus my spirit on, on God's presence. So something like that. And also active things. Prayer does not have to be a sitting in stillness. That's a valuable kind of prayer. But I've found some of the times I've heard, heard God most clearly have been when I've been hiking or I've been running. I don't do that anymore. I think you're crazy if you do. But if you're a runner, you can use that time to you know, turn your attention to God. It's amazing. I, when I was a weightlifter, I'm starting to get my oldest son in weightlifting because he's doing sports. And when I used to do sports, I lifted weights a lot. And I had forgotten until I got down on the bench press the first time. I started to lift that bar off. And I realized I pray before every single time I lift. I had built that into my life as a young man. It's just a short little prayer, but it just became a reminder for me as I was doing something active. You know, I'm just going to say something to God right now. So there's a lot of different ways you could do it. You can be creative. My challenge for all of us is just simply this. Let's not become so used to God's presence in our life that we um, just let it pass by and forget we have this amazing, valuable resource that is there to care for us day and night and the Holy Spirit in us. And, let's, and, and we have an opportunity to just pay attention and see what God wants to do. God will work through us if we do that. Let's pray. Father God, we know that we have a lot of patterns in our lives that are probably not healthy. And so we want you to help us change. We want to be able to build in patterns in our life that are going to allow us to hear your voice more clearly and to pay attention to others around us as you love them. God, we know you can do this in us and through us. Give us strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.